streaming page on the DBM website and let us know what's going on as we continue this. We have a 30-day free trial of this new uh, live streaming service. So if there, we need to check it out and make sure everything is, is uh, wor- working just fine. One of the things that I think is a real answer to prayer that uh, on, on the prayer list for the last oh two or three, maybe even four years, we've had two individuals on the prayer list um, who are both military, who both have had to retire because of their, their illnesses. One is George Meisinger's son, Jim Meisinger, who has a, had a brain tumor, malignant, and it is shrinking to the point where it's, uh, somebody told me it was gone, but I'm not sure who that was. Uh, the other person on there is Tim Hoyden. Some of you knew his mother, Virginia Hoyden, um, worked in training aides at at, uh, at Baraka. Uh, his older brother, Mike Hoyden, is an associate member here. And uh, I, Mike is my age, and Tim was like 18 years younger. I had met him uh, one time when he was in college. And he just, about a month after he made full colonel in the Army, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And he is now, I just learned from Mike yesterday, that he's in full remission. So somebody here and uh, on our prayer, who gets our prayer list, has been working very diligently and praying for these folks. And then also there were a couple of people today who went over and helped uh, Bill Katz, uh, who's a missionary with Chosen People Missions. He's with, um, he and his wife just relocated here from, uh, from Argentina. And so they have a full schedule of speaking engagements and other things that he's doing, but we'll see him around here a little bit uh, along the way. So I think that is, that covers most of the announcements. Oh, no, one other announcement. There are some beautiful poinsettias up here. And we would like for those and out anywhere in the church, you may take them with you, please. We invite you to go home with poinsettia plant um, this today, so we can um, so they'll survive. So we don't want to have them n- neglected and uh, dry up and go away. So uh, please take one. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not in your own, on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord and Uh, walking by the Spirit and prepare to study His Word and to worship Him uh, by means of the Spirit. After a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, tonight we're very grateful for answered prayer, for the way you have worked in the lives of uh, Jim Meisinger and Tim Hoyden, and I know that there are many others, and we just don't know their stories, the way that you have answered their prayers and answered prayers of many folks here for various different things, and we're very thankful that you are a God who listens, and as Scripture says, often we have not because we ask not, and that we are to uh, ask and we are to uh, pray in the name of Jesus, coming on the basis of what he did on the cross, for he is our intercessor as well as the Holy Spirit, and that we are to bring our petitions and our requests before you. And so we are so uh, encouraged when we hear about these prayers that have been answered. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity we have to fellowship together tonight around your word. And as we study through the Psalm 34, may we be strengthened and encouraged as we learn about how David is praising you for the way you intervened in his life to protect him, to 
provide for him, to deliver him and rescue him from these uh, life-threatening uh, circumstances and realize that, that today we have that same access to your throne of grace to pray and that even a greater access because of our um, intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ, and our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we are to trust you and seek your faith, and you will respond uh, by answering our prayers in many cases. And Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I pointed out last time, when we look at a psalm like this, this is not a lament psalm, which is a psalm where David is coming and he is presenting a crisis and asking God to intervene. The crisis is over, and often there are a number of these psalms in, in, the, uh, uh, in the Scripture that talk about how God, praise God for what he has done and how he has intervened in circumstances. And they give us a great insight into how God works and intervenes in the lives of people to protect, to deliver, to rescue. Uh, he doesn't always do that. There are various reasons why we go through adversity. As I pointed out last time, the first reason we go through adversity is because of bad or sinful decisions which we make and we reap the consequences of those bad decisions. The second and third reasons are not directly related to our volition, but they are related to the volition of of others around us. The second one is we have undeserved suffering because we are closely associated with someone who is making sinful or bad decisions. It may be a spouse, it may be a parent, it may be children, it may be neighbors, it may be an employer, it may be someone we work with, it may be just somebody uh, in in and around that suddenly decides to uh, become a criminal and do something in our direction. There are numerous things that other people can do that bring adversity into our lives. And then there's the third reason, which is that God allows adversity for the purpose of teaching us, the purpose of training us, and just as God the Father used suffering in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring him to maturity, even more so he uses suffering and adversity in our lives in order to bring us to maturity. David is in a set of circumstances that are not the result of a bad decision that he made, described in 1 Samuel 21. They are the result of his obedience to the Lord and the hostility that that generated from Saul, who now seeks his life. And that often happens when we are living in the devil's world. There are those who will react to us. I know that some of you have family members that have reacted to your stand for the word of God that there are friends, that there are circumstances and situations in the workplace that uh, have created a hostile environment uh, for people, and you can take encouragement from looking at this particular psalm. One of the focal points, one of the themes in this psalm that runs through it is the deliverance of God. There are several different words used here translated into English as deliver, also uh, to save, uh, to rescue. Uh, these all talk about that God delivers or intervenes in the lives of those who fear him, the lives of those who trust in him in order to uh, protect them. And that protection can come in different ways. That protection can come in such a way that it is uh, keeping us from harm. In some, time, some cases, God allows us to be harmed. And we are then, and even to be killed, and then we're absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. So there are different circumstances related to God's plan, and it's not always the same. And we'll see an example of that as we as we go through today. In Psalm 34, 8, I pointed out last night that this brings a focus on part of this psalm is that David realizes and focuses on the fact that God is good, that he protects us, he blesses us, his plans. As Jeremiah says related to Israel, his plans are for good and not for evil. God seeks our best. He loves us with a perfect love. And so we are to taste and see, and we'll understand this a little more later on, that the Lord is good. That's a call to experience his goodness in our own spiritual life. And the basis for this is in the second line, 
that we are blessed because we trust in him. We rely upon him. Uh, Last time, as we got into our passage, uh, we looked at several different verses that talk about how God watches us, that he is very concerned, he is very focused, he's very much aware of everything we go through. Uh, We've seen this in the previous Psalm, Psalm 33.18, uses the uh, statement, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy. And that is echoed then in our psalm, showing the close connection between the two. The eyes of the Lord, that eyes are, is always a, a metaphor or in, more specifically a metonymy of the eyes related to what they do, which is to bring knowledge to someone. So the eyes of the Lord always emphasizes his omniscience or his knowledge. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. He is fully aware of what is going on in their lives. In Matthew, we're told that the hairs of our head are numbered. God knows down to the microscopic minutia, every detail of our life, every thought, every concern, every motivation, every desire. God is not unaware of anything going on. He never takes a vacation from watching over us. His eyes on the righteous and his ears are open to our cry. He listens to our prayers and he answers. Now, just so that you uh, can connect some of the dots here, uh, as we look at the latter part of this particular psalm, not only does this psalm relate to what we're studying in 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel 21, which is the context when, when David wrote this, but also four verses in this psalm are picked up by 1 Peter, and in 1 Peter chapter 3, he's going to quote from four of these verses in this psalm. Now, we probably won't get to that section of 1 Peter 3 uh, for uh, a few more weeks, but I won't have to go back and do a complete exposition of Psalm 34 when we get there because I'm doing it in this series, and most of you are here on both Thursday night, Tuesday night and Thursday night. So we saw that there's the historical introduction to the psalm in Psalm 34, that this is in the historical context of David's escape from Saul when he decided that it was a good idea to go hide amongst his enemies because that would be the last place that Saul would look for him. So he goes to Gath, which was Goliath's hometown, and he's bringing with him Goliath's sword as if he needed something to give evidence to everybody of who he was. And um, when he's there, he's identified, and he decides the best thing to do is to fake being uh, insane. Because in the superstitious religious environment of, uh, of, of much of the paganism of that time, the act of insanity was thought to that someone was touched by the gods. And so the last thing you would do, want to do is do anything that would hurt or harm someone who's touched by the gods. That was, in their superstition, that would bring great misfortune upon you. So by faking uh, insanity, David was really had really thought this through and had chosen a good strategy. And what we learned from this psalm is what's going on behind the scenes in terms of his uh, mental uh, attitude in, tr- in terms of the fear that he's dealing with, his personal fear is a terrible life-threatening situation, and his trust in God. We saw this map here showing that uh, David had first gone to Nob, uh, and where he picked up the sword from Goliath as well as some bread, put, and we'll learn that the, put, he put the priest in jeopardy there. And then he escaped to Gath here. This is a distance of about 20, 25 miles, and that was the hometown. So we also looked at an outline last time, two divisions. The first is where David declares his praise to God in verse, the first 10 verses, uh, first, verses 1 through 3, we covered last time, David expresses his vow, his commitment to praise God and to invite others to praise God uh, with him. In verses 4 through 7, he describes how God delivered him and why he is praising God. And we, got, we stopped at about verse 4 and finished that, but we'll pick up there tonight. And then in verses 18 
uh, 8 through 10, he is challenging others to follow his example and to trust the Lord uh, for protection and provision, whether this is psychological protection because we're fearful, sometimes we're anxious, sometimes we're put in situations with people where we feel insecure or unsafe uh, emotionally or mentally, so there's protection there, or it may be physical. We trust in God, so David is challenging us to do that. The second half of the psalm, verses 11 to 22, is descriptive praise, and in descriptive praise, the writer of the praise is not only praising God, but he's challenging or instructing or teaching others to follow him in praise of God and in obeying what he has learned. So it has a strong doctrinal emphasis, especially on wisdom. And what we'll see in these verses is there's a lot of similarity between what David is saying in verses 11 to 22 and what is said in the, in the book of Proverbs about how the righteous are to live. And that should remind us that David is the father who is teaching wisdom to his son Solomon. And Solomon is the one who wrote uh, the book of Proverbs. So we see these many themes here that are echoed and developed in the book of Psalms. The first two verses is where David invites others to learn and experience God's goodness. And then in the remainder of the psalm from 13 to 22, there are five basic instructions to those who he's writing to, inviting them to apply doctrine, to apply the word, to be wise in their life, and to glorify God. We looked at three types of parallelism last time. I've added uh, one more this time, just to remind you as we're dealing with Hebrew poetry. In synonymous parallelism, the it's not a like in American poetry often you have the rhyming of words you have the rhyming or the echo of ideas so that the second line echoes with synonyms the thought in the first line so that's really helpful when we as students of the word are studying the meaning of words because we see the juxtaposition of synonyms in the Psalms, and that helps us to understand the meanings of a lot of words. So in synonymous of parallelism, the thought expressed in the first part of the verse is repeated in the second part, but with different uh, but equivalent terms. The second kind is synthetic parallelism. We see a lot of examples of that in this Psalm, where the idea expressed in the first line is then expanded and developed or completed in the following lines, and that is called synthetic parallelism. And then tonight we're going to see two more, uh, or basically one more. There's two other kinds of parallelism that are common in the Psalms. The, the third type that we're looking at is antithetic parallelism. This is when the idea expressed in the first line is contrasted in the second line. And Psalm 90, verse 6, is a, an example of that. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it is cut down and withers. So the second line is in contrast to the thought of the first line. And then you have a fourth kind called emblematic parallelism, emblematic parallelism. And if you have a good study Bible, NIV, um, Ryrie Study Bible, uh, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, you will find that they usually explain these different kinds of parallelism in their introduction to the Psalms, and that's helpful to, to learn these so that when you read the Psalms, you read more intelligently. And you should be reading the Psalms regularly in Proverbs. A lot of people try to read, there's 150 Psalms, there's 30 days in the month, so if you read five Psalms a day, you'll read through the, all of the uh, Psalter in uh, in a month, and some people will combine reading of five psalms with one proverb because there's 31 proverbs, and if you pick a month like January or March or May with 31 days and you read one proverb and five psalms uh, each day, then you will read through psalms and proverbs in a month. But we also have an expanded reading schedule for those who wish to try to read through their Bible in a year, and you really should do that. Every believer should, should read through the Scriptures every year to come to understand 
uh, what God has said. Sure, you will have questions. Sure, you're going to say, well, that doesn't make sense. I do that all the time. It happens to me. That's how we learn. We don't learn by just reading things we already know and understand. That's silly. We read to grow and expand by reading things that challenge us and that take us to a new level. So I encourage you this next year uh, to go to that reading plan on the Dean Bible Ministries website or to go to a different uh, plan. There are a lot of different plans out there. You can find many on the Internet and read through your Bible in, in a year. Emblematic parallelism is the idea expressed in one line of a verse is a complete picture or emblem which illustrates the idea expressed in the other line. So, for example, in Psalm 103.13, the first line says, As a father pities his children. So that provides a metaphor or a picture for us. We know how a father has compassion on his children. And so then the that's the... Uh, a- analogy and the an- ultimate analog is the Lord. So the Lord pities those or has compassion upon those who fear him. So the f- father's compassion for his children is an emblem or a picture that we can use to understand how the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Okay, those are the four kinds of uh, uh, of parallelism, synonymous parallelism, synthetic parallelism, antithetic parallelism, and emblematic parallelism. So last time we looked, we got down through about the end of verse 4, maybe into verse 5 a little bit. So I'll remind you a little bit, this opening section is still the section where David is declaring his praise to God, explaining what God has done for him and how God has provided for him. And he is describing in verses 4 through 7 how God has delivered him. And he begins with this phrase, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. So what we see here is also a cause and effect, that the cause is the seeking of the Lord. And the result is, he heard me, and in addition, he delivered me from all my fears. In fact, if we look at the parallelism in this line, the second part, he heard me, is developed by the second line. So the second line is a synonym, an expanded synonym of hearing me. What does it mean to hear? Not just to have auditory nerves stimulated. In the Bible, to listen means to listen with a positive response. You haven't listened if you aren't responding positively. Uh, This is why James challenges his readers that they need to Uh, hear the word of the Lord, listen and obey. So he sought the Lord and he heard me, and that would be expanded then in the synonym, delivered me from all my fears. What it means for the Lord to listen to us is to respond and answer our prayer positively. He delivered me from all my fears. Now this first word that we see, here's a word we'll see repeated later in the psalm. It's a common word in the psalm to express uh, prayer. I sought the Lord. It's the Hebrew word darash, which means to seek God earnestly, to petition him intentionally, not just to have a bullet prayer, but to take the time to craft a well-argued Uh, petition to God stating what you would like God to do and the biblical basis for why you would like God to intervene in that way. And you see this a lot in the Psalms where there's a structure to the, the request. We often just very superficially say, Lord, please do this or heal this person or intervene here rather than taking the time to back it up with scripture. Of course, if you don't read your Bible, you can't find those scriptures. Backing it up with promises that are stated in the scripture and say, Lord, in this verse, you make this, you state this, and you state the promise. I'm claiming that promise that you would intervene in this way because by doing so, it will bring glory and honor to you and be a testimony to you. So we're thoughtfully expressing 
our, our prayers. The Lord uh, says, I sought the Lord, and he heard me. And in the second line, two key words, he delivered me. That's the Hebrew word natsal, which means to take something away, to remove the negative circumstances, to uh, deliver a person from all their fears. And the word here for fears is an intense word for fear. Normally you have yareh, which is a your common word for fear, but this is an intense word that we would translate uh, terror or dread. And that gives us a picture of what David's going through as he goes into Gath and his cover's blown and he realizes that the enemy will come and very likely kill him, that everybody hates him because he killed the hometown hero. And so he is in deep fear for his life. He is uh, getting ready not just to push the panic button, but to sit on the panic button. And so what he does to prevent losing emotional control in the situation through fear is he seeks the Lord. Prayer is the the vehicle for applying the faith rest drill. Faith rest drill is the spiritual skill for uh, claiming promises, but a prayer is that vehicle for communicating that uh, to the Lord. So he delivered me from all my terrors and from my dread. And we see a lot of different passages like this in the scripture. I quoted these last time. Psalm 23, 4. Psalm 23 is such a great psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's the idea that I have no needs. Now we're going to see that same idea expressed here that, that the righteous have no need. God is the one who provides and supplies that need. And then in Psalm 23, the psalmist goes on to say that even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this is a life-threatening situation. It could be health, it could be war, it could be enemies, it could be criminality, it could be any number of life-threatening situations. I can be in a life-threatening situation and I fear no evil. I am not going to be afraid, succumb to fear, give in to fear, think about fear, because God is the one who strengthens me and he is the one who protects me. That's the imagery of Psalm 23. He's the shepherd who protects the sheep. Psalm 27.1, David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? If God is for me, who can be against me? Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Who's greater than God? God is omnipotent, and he's omnipresent, he's omniscient, and he's always known all these things. Why should I be afraid of anything in this creation if the creator's backing my play? Why should I be afraid? So we can relax in any situation or circumstance. And I'm always reminded of the, of the thinking of uh, Stonewall Jackson, And most of you have heard the story how he got his name at the first Battle of Manassas. I'm a Southerner. We don't call it Bull Run. At the first Battle of Manassas. And he was uh, some in the midst of the battle. He's trying to motivate his men, encourage them. And he was standing and, you know, cannon were going off around him and bullets were flying. And someone yelled out, look at Jackson. He's standing there like a stone wall. And the question was, how, General, how can you do that with all the bullets flying? He said, God has the hairs of my head numbered and, the de- and my days numbered. I'm going to die when the Lord says it's time to die. Why should I be afraid? I'm going to lead the men in battle and trust God to protect me. And there was absolutely no fear in his mind because he trusted so fully and completely in the Lord. In Psalm 34, we see this expressed in in the psalm we're reading now in verse 4. God delivered me from all my fears. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around me. Beautiful picture there of this army of angels that protects us. And then verse 9, oh, fear the Lord. There's the flip side of this, that we are not to be afraid of circumstances, but we are to fear the Lord. That is the foundation of our spiritual life. And then in the New Testament, we're told that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Now, in the next verse, he expands on this a little bit, and this is really interesting. The translation is not exactly right 
as you see it in the New King James in verse 5. It's stated there as a, as a, translated as a past tense of someone who does something. But I want you to notice that there's a little shift that takes place here. Let me read verse 4 to you. I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Who is the subject of verse 4? David, I, me, my, my. It's a clear, clearly written from the first person perspective. What changes in verse 5? What's the subject of verse 5? They. It's not first person anymore. He's, suddenly he's quit talking about me and he's talking about they. It's a third person plural. They looked to him, God the Father, and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. Who are the they? Where does this come in? This is written as if it's in, uh, in a uh, sort of an indicative mood describing something that's happening. And we've got a little twist on that. The first word here is the Hebrew word navat, which is in the hifil. That's a causative stem. Hebrews ha- Hebrew has about eight stems, nine stems. Each one, ha- and one word will appear in each different stem, and each one kind of changes the meaning just a little bit. So that in the cal stem, that's sort of a uh, sort of an indicative mood. That's your standard meaning. But when you get into the pl, it will intensify it. And then when you get in the hifil, it adds a causative sense to it. And then uh, the hitpa'el will add a reflexive sense to it. So you have to look at all these different things. And sometimes it really changes the meaning and sometimes just not so much. So they looked to him. And that has that idea of uh, in the hifil, they gaze. It's, it's an intensification. They gazed with expectation. Okay, but in the perfect tense here, uh, this has the idea of what is expressed by the phrase that is probably unfamiliar to many of you, the idea of uh, being a gnomic statement. That's spelled G-N-O-M-I-C. And the word gnomic is used in literature to describe universal statements or principles uh, that have been uh, that have been expressed, sort of like truisms, things that are generally or universally true. So as a gnomic perfect, it's not saying they look to him, but it is stating it as a universal principle, those who look to him, anyone who looks to him. It's stating it as a general principle, not as, a, as a, an indicative fact about some specific people. So it's saying those who gaze upon him with expectation are radiant. And this is the idea of shining or beaming. They're excited. You know, you've seen this. You probably saw it two days ago. If you have children or grandchildren around the Christmas tree and they're opening up that present and it's just what they wanted, their eyes were glowing and their faces were beaming and they were just so excited to get what they were getting. That's what this is p- depicting here. Those who look to him are radiant. It is stating a universal principle that those who are believers and are looking to God for to, to sustain us and protect us and defend us have joy. They have joy. They do not succumb to fear. So this idea of being radiant is a figure of speech for um, uh, joy and excitement. They, those who look to Him. Are radiant. See, I've corrected the translation on this slide. Uh, those who look to him are radiant with joy. And then we have a synthetic parallelism here. Notice the second line develops and expands the thought of the first line. Those who look are radiant with joy and their faces. This is the result. Because you look to the Lord and you have joy, then the result is your face is never ashamed. God is never going to let us down. God is never going to embarrass us. So it's a statement of a universal truth. So we look at verse um, verse 4, and David is stating what he did. He said, I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me for all my fears. And we might ask the question, well, 
what's going on here? What are the principles? What's the issue? And that's what he explains in verse 5, the general principle. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces are not ashamed. So this is expressing how, that God is the one that we can trust, and he will deliver us in fearful circumstances. And then we come to verse 6, and verse 6 reads, uh, the translation is somewhat awkward. Again, it is um, a synthetic parallelism with a synonymous parallelism in the minute, in the middle of it, heard him and saved him are synonymous. The poor man cried out. Now, when many of us read this, when we read the word poor, we talk about, we think about somebody who is economically disadvantaged, the needy. I always wondered about that. We would talk about the needy when I was in elementary school, and I'd go, I'm not sure I get the concept. What's, what's that mean? These are the poor. They don't have, uh, but it's not talking here about those who are economically disadvantaged. It's not talking about those who are in the lower socioeconomic strata. It's talking about those who are afflicted. That's the idea, those who are under adversity. It doesn't have anything to do with their economic circumstances. It has to do with the fact that they are uh, under attack. David was under attack in Gath. His life was being threatened. And so he is expressing this here. The afflicted one would actually be a better translation. The afflicted one cried out. So this is parallel to the idea expressed in verse 4. I sought the Lord. And here it's the poor man referring to himself. The afflicted one cried out or called out, and the Lord heard him. See, this is the same thought back in the first line of verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he heard me. Here it is. Uh, this poor man, this afflicted man cried out, and the Lord uh, heard him and saved him. And this is the idea of Yeshua, the uh, Yasha, the idea of just basic salvation or deliverance. Uh, the Lord heard and saved him out of all his troubles. And the word troubles there is the Hebrew word sarah, which mean, literally it has the idea of being in a tight place, being in straits, being hemmed in, becoming under pressure. So it fits our category of adversity, that external pressure of circumstances in life. And so someone who is in distress, the uh, afflicted one, this afflicted man, uh, cried out, and the Lord heard him and, and saved him out of all his distress or out of all his adversity. So this expands that. And we see this also parallel in the second half of the psalm where David states the same idea again, the righteous cry out. Here it's expressed as more of a universal uh, principle of wisdom uh, that the righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their adversity, out of all their troubles. This is a universal uh, universal principle. So David then goes on to explain this in verse 7. Verse 7, he says, the as it's written, translated in the New King James, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. I want to go back and look at some. Okay, when I was at this verse, we read in uh, verse 6, the Lord saved him out of all of his troubles. But this word for poor man is also used in Lamentations 3, verses 1 to 26. And I want to take the time to look at that uh, before we go any further. Because... There are times when people hear the promises of God and read through this, and they say, well, wait a minute. I know times when God didn't deliver people. That's right. That's because that's also part of God's sovereign discretion, and we don't know why they're going through uh, that kind of adversity. So let's turn over to uh, Lamentations, and you'll find Lamentations, if I can find it, um, in your Bible around... Uh, Where I've lost Lamentations. Uh, Lamentations, uh, Song of Solomon, uh, 
I know it's around Jeremiah. I couldn't find it around Jeremiah. I'm turning too many pages. Okay, I'll get there. You can pray for me. Lamentations chapter 3. Okay, see, somebody prayed and I got there. Listen to this. I mean, this has... One of these days I'm going to teach through Lamentations. Lamentations is the grief of Jeremiah when he looks around. The southern kingdom of Judah has absolutely been destroyed, been conquered by a foreign power. Jerusalem has been burned to the ground hundreds of thousands have been killed and buried in the Valley of Hinnom, and there is no future. And uh, hundreds of thousands have been hauled off as captives to Babylon. And so he begins in verse 3, I am the man who has seen affliction. It's the same word that we have here, the word anah, the word of, of affliction. And he's talking about, I have been afflicted. He's been living in a country that's been conquered. He's lost everything that he has. He's lost friends. He's lost family. He's lost his home. Uh, He's going to be deported one way or another. And he says, I'm the man who has seen affliction by the rod of God's wrath. See, that's the cause of the problem. It's a discipline or cursing by association because he lived in the midst of a generation that was negative and hostile to God's word. Uh, Several generations before had been negative to God's word, and so now God is finally bringing judgment on Israel and is going to fulfill his promise to take them out of the land. And so this is what sets the stage. So some kinds of adversity we're in may not result in our uh, physical uh, deliverance, but God is always going to take care of us and provide for us, and He's either going to uh, deliver us completely from those circumstances and change them, or He's going to deliver us through them where those circumstances don't change, or He's going to take us home to be with Him. One of those three options, but God always will protect us. But Jeremiah goes on to say, uh, talking about the Lord, He has led me. And made me walk in darkness and not in light. See, sometimes the path that God will take us through is a path that is dark. It is filled with challenges, heartache, loss, affliction, physical pain, emotional pain, sorrow. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. My circumstances are horrible. That's what Jeremiah is saying. He's aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones and has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. I cannot help to think about uh, tens of thousands, maybe even Uh, several hundred thousands of Christian believers who were uh, arrested and deported by the Nazis and put into the death camps. Whether they were probably, uh, estimates range from 300 to 500,000 Messianic Jews. You may not know this, um, but they're... uh, Uh, Mitch Glazer, who's the president of Chosen People Ministries, wrote his Ph.D. dissertation at UCLA tracing uh, what was going on in the Jewish communities in Eastern Europe between 1900 and 1935. And one of the things that he discovered was that there were a number of, of legitimate revivals and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, sometimes entire Jewish shtetls, Jewish villages, were converted to Christianity during that that period from 1900 to 1935, so that many of those Jewish believers 
were arrested and deported to Auschwitz and Treblinka and to other camps. And I can't help but believe that they witnessed to their fellow Jews when they were in the cattle cars and they were in the trucks and they were being taken uh, to the death camps. And this is what this reminds me of is Jeremiah says, He's aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones. He's besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. He's hedged me in so that I can't get out. It's obvious that's exactly where God wanted Jeremiah to be, and he had to walk through that dark adversity. Jeremiah says, even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. It's as if he doesn't listen, because God had a different plan, not to rescue him physically and remove him from that situation. Jeremiah says, he's blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He has been to me a bear lying in wait like a lion in ambush. He's turned aside my ways and torn me in pieces. He's made me desolate. Are you feeling upbeat right now? This is not one of those real positive passages yet. Yet. He's made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set up, set me up as a target for the arrow. I don't know about you, but I have felt this at times. Like God set me up. I wasn't the arrow. I was the target. And all you can do is continue to trust God. As Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Jeremiah goes on to say, He's caused the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. I've become the ridicule of all my people, their taunting song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink wormwood or bitterness. He's made life horrible for me. He's also broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. And you have moved my soul far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity. And I said, my and I said, this is his mental attitude. In the midst of all the loss, all the misery, all the sorrow, he says, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul stills remembers and sinks within me. But this I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. After he's gone through 20 verses of detailing the horrors of what he has gone through in the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, the first temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, this I recall to mind, not the circumstances which he just detailed, but the Lord focusing on doctrine. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning, Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. That is the mental attitude of the believer in the midst of adversity. It doesn't mean God's going to take us out of the adversity and always give us wonderful and pleasant circumstances. In fact, Jesus promised that in this world, we would have tribulation, not the tribulation, but we would have adversity. That's the best way to translate the word there. Some people get the idea that that the rapture means that we're not going to go through tribulation or adversity. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that, that we will go through tribulation, but not the tribulation, because the tribulation is unlike any other period in human history. It is a unique time, and we're going to start studying about it this coming Sunday morning on uh, as we get into Matthew 24 and 25. So this is analogous. This is what David is talking about. This man who is afflicted, this is what, what we see, these pictures of those who are going through uh, difficult times and extreme, extreme adversity. Yet nevertheless, what sustains them is their relationship with the Lord, which is grounded on a knowledge of doctrine. Okay, verse 7. Now, we understand God's protection. Sometimes we talk about the wall of fire. Here we see that this is the protection of the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers delivers them. Now, this is an important 
thing to understand. Who is the angel of the Lord? Well, first of all, we have to look at the parallelism here. In this verse, we see a uh, synonymous parallelism. The first uh, stanza, the angel of the Lord encamps. That's a way that God delivers or rescues us or protects us. So that's parallel to the last line and delivers them. So that's the synonymous parallelism. In the middle, we have a second line that limits this encampment to all around those who fear him. We'll understand that fearing God is a critical part of this this psalm, that is what is described by, by David's instruction in the second half from verses 11 to 22, is describing uh, what we should do, what the person who fears God should be doing in their life. So the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers him. Now the term angel here is the Hebrew word malak, which means a messenger. But this is not an everyday messenger. In fact, if you were here Sunday morning, and most of you were, and you heard me talking about the the targums uh, that were written between the close of the Old Testament canon and on through the first century, but the older targums uh, were commentaries by the rabbis on the Old Testament. And in these targums, they came to understand that, it, it, that in many of these passages, it's not just talking about Yahweh, but it was talking about the messenger of Yahweh. And they referred to the messenger of Yahweh as the, the word or the memra. That was an Aramaic term that was used. And sometimes the memra... The word of the Lord was identified with Yahweh, and sometimes the memra, the word of the Lord, was distinct from Yahweh, a distinct person. John picks up on that idea and uses that when he talks about the logos of God, logos being the Greek translation of memra. And they would, in some passages, they identified the angel of Yahweh as the memra, uh, which is what we would say. This The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is the pre-incarnate Lagos of God and described as, as identical with God. So whenever we think about the angel of the Lord, we know that there are a number of passages where the angel of the Lord is identified as Yahweh. The key passage to go to is the first mention of the angel of the Lord in Genesis 16, 7 to 13. Uh, Hagar, who was uh, Sarah's handmaiden that she encouraged Abraham to have relations with so that she could give birth to a son since Sarah was too old. Hagar at this time uh, was uh, uh, going to, uh, uh, was uh, had already had relations with Abraham, but it made Sarah quite jealous. So she's leaving. She's going to go on the run. And the angel of the Lord appeared to her. We'll look at that in just a minute. Parallel passages where the angel of the Lord is viewed as being identical with Yahweh are in Genesis 22, 11 to 12. This is when the Lord had instructed Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And the angel of the Lord appears to Abraham. And Abraham talks to the angel of the Lord and calls the angel of the Lord Yahweh. So the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, is identical to Yahweh. Also, in Judges 6, uh, where the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, Gideon calls the angel of the Lord Yahweh, builds an altar to worship uh, the angel of the Lord. And so uh, the same is true in these other passages. Genesis 16, 7, and 10, we see that the angel of the Lord is... Uh, pursuing Hagar, appears to Hagar, finds her by a spring of water. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord says to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly. That would be through Ishmael. Then in verse 13, we read, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Who spoke to her? The angel of the Lord. And now she's going to call the name of Yahweh who spoke to her. By verse 13, she's referring to Yahweh, to the angel as Yahweh, and calls him, you are the God who sees. So it's very clear from that passage, same kind of thing we see in those other passages, that the angel of the Lord is identified in numerous passages as one with Yahweh. 
but also there are passages where the angel of the Lord is distinct from Yahweh. Uh, in Genesis chapter 24, verse 7, as well as in 2 Samuel 24, 16, and Zechariah 1, 12. In Zechariah 1, 12, the angel of the Lord, the Malach, uh, Yahweh, answered someone who's speaking to him and says, addresses this other person as Yahweh Sabaoth, O Lord of hosts. So the angel of the Lord here, who is viewed as divine in other passages, is now speaking to Yahweh Tzabaoth. So there are two personages here. So the angel of the Lord now is distinct from Yahweh, and other passages the same. So that is the Trinity in the Old Testament. Two divine personages identified as one. So the angel of Yahweh is a distinct person from Yahweh, in these passages and is worshipped as equal with Yahweh indicating a divine person. These appearances in the Old Testament are called a theophany from theos and phanerao, the Greek word theos meaning God and phanerao meaning an appearance of God in the Old Testament. After the resurrection, the appearances of God are, are in the person of Christ and they're called Christophanies. In the Old Testament, you have theophanies. Um, so the passage that we're looking at, David is reminding us that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and the Hebrew word uh, for for that is the same word that we find over in Genesis 32. Uh, two, but in a slightly different form, in a dual. Hebrew has a singular for one, a plural for three or more, and a dual for two. Okay? So, mahanaim is a dual ending. And Jacob is uh, coming back to uh, the promised land. He's fearful of of Laban who's chasing him, he's fearful of Esau who's coming out to meet him, and we're told that the angels of God met him. Interesting. And at this spot, when Jacob saw the angels of God that surrounded him to protect him, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of the place Mahanaim, meaning two camps. His camp of his family and his servants and the other camp of the angels that were surrounding them and protecting them. That's your Old Testament image for what David is saying here that the uh, angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he rescues them. Uh, that's a better term than delivers them. It's the Hebrew word kalatz in the PL, which is an intensified stem, and it means to rescue in the PL. So he, as David experienced, he's rescued from the threats of the uh, Philistines in Gath from taking his life. Other passages that use this imagery in Psalm 27.3, David says, though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. There again, because we trust in God's protection, we're not afraid no matter what the circumstances are. The, roar may, the war may rise against me, and this I will be confident. And then in the New Testament, we have the promise in Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God surrounds us and protects us. So that takes us that takes us through verse 7. So we've looked at just the first part of this declaration of praise, the first three verses. David vows to praise God and invites others to join him in praise. And then in these uh, verses, verses 34, 4 through 7, God, uh, David describes God's deliverance. Next time, I'm going to come back and look at verses 8 through 10 and hopefully get a little further along in the psalm. But there's so much that's here, and it's so interesting to tie these things together. Uh, you don't want to overanalyze the psalms, and I don't want to do that. 
But it's such a rich encouragement for us as we read these things to understand that the bottom line here that David is saying is God's power is sufficient to protect us from any fear or anxiety or worry that you can come up with in life because we can't outthink God. We can't come up with some danger, some threat, some insecurity that God didn't know about and provide for from eternity past. And he will always deliver us and rescue us in those circumstances, no matter how bad it may get, as we saw with Jeremiah in Lamentations chapter 3. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and be reminded of your goodness, to be reminded that you watch over us, your eyes are always on us, and you protect us and you provide for us. And that no matter what our circumstances may be, you sustain us and you you provide for everything we need to fulfill your plan and purpose in our lives. Father, we thank you for the encouragement we receive from your word and pray that you will strengthen us in Christ's name. Amen.